we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm chatting to Paul Dabrova. Paul is a Melbourne-based biohacker and an artificial intelligence and social media expert. During his time at Harvard, he focused his social research on the use of propaganda. On this episode, however, Paul talks about the potential and future of biohacking through easy access to advanced gene-modifying technology, also known as CRISPR. Despite being part of this growing biohacker scene, Paul doesn't shy away from also addressing the dangers that can come with this technology and know-how in the wrong hands. I'm really excited to talk to this proud garage scientist on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Hello, Ben. It's great to talk to you. Thanks to Hollywood, we all have an idea of what a hacker is. You know, we see a person sitting in front of a bunch of glowing screens in the dark, some dark room doing illegal things, breaking into some government network. That's a hacker. Um, what is it like being a biohacker? What's the typical day of a biohacker like? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you today. So I woke up, made myself a cup of tea, had some breakfast, um, and then uh, collected animal poo. <laughs> uh because i want to uh do some stuff related to my dog um okay and so uh i've been collecting the poo and then after this uh, interview i'll uh help get the poo ready for processing and then send that off to a laboratory which is going to genetically sequence the poo for me that, that doesn't sound too glamorous <laughs> it doesn't no no but uh it, it's look the best way to describe it to you is if if Computer hacking uh, 30 years ago was in its infancy and biohacking is now where computer hacking was uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, the best way to describe it to you, just imagine when you first got your computer and how that changed your life. Yeah, and, right. how, big, and how big the disks were with 800 kilobytes of storage on them, yeah. Yeah, but, you had, no, but you had a level of knowledge and you could do things that, 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 that amazed you. That's why I did biohacking, right? I mean, I, I, I got to know this guy called Craig Venter and, and he's literally the guy who made the first man-made life form. Wow. And I just got interested. So I taught myself biology and I wake up in the morning and I literally now understand how nature works. And every day I go to sleep and I learn something new about how nature works. And it's amazing. You know, I can look at a flower and it's not just a pretty flower. I know how that flower works. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Although occasionally you do have to collect dog poop, so <laughs> it's it's sort of it's sort of the the, the punishment. <laughs> the punishment, a part with, of the journey. Part with the great journey. knowledge, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better. All right, but uh, doing biohacking, I like that analogy of like computers in the eighties, and then we, we are where we are now. When exactly did advanced biohacking become? 
a thing. I mean, CRISPR technology has been around since the late 80s. Um, when, when has it become a real thing, like this community do, do. of biohackers? But, but biohacking has always been a thing, right? Um, science is biohacking, right? The, 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 guy who, the guy who created the smallpox vaccine, he was a biohacker. You know, he, he, really? he, yeah, of course he was, right? He literally went up to cowgirls that were probably very attractive and they were milking cows near his thing. And he noticed that they didn't get smallpox. So he was curious, right? So he went there and got to know them and he like took samples of everything. And he, it, it's sort of like a puzzle, right? Like it, it's, it's like a computer puzzle. Your computer, you need to you need to do a word processing thing. Well, you've got to find the icon on the screen, which is the correct icon. It's the same thing with with uh, with biohacking. He was like, okay, well, maybe it's what they eat, maybe it's a chemical, maybe it's what they do. What he found out is all of them had something called cowpox, ah. and so if if they caught cowpox, they didn't get smallpox. Then he was like, well, look, this smallpox thing—it's not really such a good thing. People die. It's a really horrible disease. Yeah. Um, so, well, why don't I infect other people with cowpox and see if uh, that actually makes a difference? And amazingly, they didn't get smallpox. <laughs> so he's like, well, I've got something here. So then he went to, and the Royal Institution in the UK literally was set up by hackers, biohackers, physics hackers, right? It was a, they literally set up a club for hackers to, to, to meet each other and they got a very swanky building with a bit of interesting lab equipment. <laughs> but that's, you know, one of the first proper university type things. And so he, he turned up and he's like, hey, you know, like, um, you know, th this, this cowpox thing tends to stop people from getting smallpox. Yeah, yeah. And what we can do is we can just like do a little scratch on someone's arm and, and they don't die. That's a pretty good thing. And then it became popular. And, and there you have that. Going back to the CRISPR technology, just to explain it to our listeners and also to me, because uh, biology wasn't my strongest subject at school. Um, how, how does it work? When we think of CRISPR, we think of, for example, these tiny little picks, these teacup picks that were created and stuff. What, what is CRISPR technology and um, how, how does it work and why is it so uh, fundamental to biohacking? Okay, so... What, what CRISPR is in, in layman's terms, um, it's the ability to sort of edit DNA, right? So viruses have had the ability to edit DNA. So they can literally insert bits of DNA into DNA code to change the DNA. Now you have a cell, right? So DNA is literally the um, instruction manual for the cell. It's sort of the programming language, right? So I remember when I was talking about Craig Venter. So Craig Venter would find little bits of DNA, which uh, were able to do certain things. So for example, you know, he's trying to find a bit of DNA that's able to turn uh, carbon dioxide um, into uh, petrol, right? And so these little, these little bits of DNA, the idea with CRISPR is you can get these little bits, you can edit the DNA of a living organism and then change what it does. So, for example, um, when I was in the States, you know, you can do a little a bit of an experiment where you can uh, get yeast, right, uh, which, which can be yeah. used to make beer. Yeah. And then you can get the little bit of DNA in a jellyfish, which says uh, glow <laughs> in the dark, right? And so what you do is you use CRISPR. It's a bit of a shotgun approach. So it's not as accurate as you think it is, but it is getting better. You can use CRISPR to get that little bit of DNA from the jellyfish, which makes things glow in the dark. 
you then do a bigger higgly-piggly, and then you change the DNA of the yeast so that the yeast now has that jellyfish DNA in it, which makes it glow in the dark. Which also proves UV lamp on it. Which also proves that biohacking is also a lot about fun, having fun with, uh, <laughs> with DNA. It's, it's not all serious, which I it's love. It's fun. It's fun. Look, yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 about learning, right? I mean, the, the the best way to describe it to you is if if you look at the science um, industry now, right? Um, people who have new ideas don't get funded to do academic research. Yeah. The people that get funded to do academic research are people that have been there for a very long time. They're people that uh, know the people who do the funding and have close relationships to them. But if you look at science, it's the mavericks and the weirdos who actually move scientific knowledge on, right? I mean, take Barry Marshall for an example, right? Barry's Barry's up in, um, in Western Australia. So Barry was a gastroenterologist. And he's no, he noticed that um, uh, there was a specific bacteria which was present when people had ulcers, right? And Barry was like, okay, well, you know, if there's a specific bacteria present when people have ulcers, then that actually might be the reason why people have ulcers, right? Yeah. Just like the guy who invented the smallpox vaccine. It's like, okay, well, let's test it out, right? And so Barry tried to get funding. He goes to the academic institutions and says, look, I've isolated this bacteria. It seems like it causes ulcers. All I really need to do is get, you know, a few thousand people who have ulcers, give them antibiotics, which are freely available and perfectly harmless. And if I cure their ulcers, then we've got a cure for ulcers, right? Yeah. And all he really needed the money for, it wasn't really for buying the antibiotics and all of that sort of stuff. It was more for the legalities of actually conducting a research study yeah, yeah, and getting people to sign off and make sure it was ethically okay and all that sort of stuff. So it literally was like the industrialized form of science. And so what Barry did is he didn't get any funding because obviously apparently he's stupid and doesn't know anything. But the people that were getting funding were the people that were working for the big drug companies who were making... Um, drugs that prevent the release of acid in the gut. Um, even though that obviously wasn't working because people were getting ulcers and more and more people were getting ulcers. Mm. So what Barry ended up doing was he was like, okay, well, you know, I can just infect myself with this bacteria. And if I get ulcers, then that sort of proves it. And I know that these antibiotics will kill that bacteria. So he made a vial of that bac bacteria. He you know, swigs it down. And then a few days later, he's got ulcers. So he's like, okay, well, this bacteria seems to cause ulcers. So yeah. then he, uh, you know, takes some antibiotics and that kills the ulcers and he just cured himself from ulcers. But do you know how long it took for people to take Barry's discovery seriously? Have a no, guess. No, no. 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. So Barry, After he'd proven that it, that it works. Yeah. So, so Barry oh, obviously wow. got some funding once he'd proven it. Yeah. And he would literally go and present to doctors and to scientists yeah. Many of them funded by drug companies. And uh, yeah, no one believed him for 10 years. I mean, there were people when he won the Nobel Prize at that stage who were not prescribing antibiotics for ulcers. Wow. I think that's an important uh, point that you're making there. These gatekeepers, um, that, that is such a big hurdle for a lot of people to, to overcome and a lot of people deflect of that hurdle or get deflected and, and that's it. That's the end of it. Um, so 
sometimes you have to take measures in your own hands, like Barry, and also like yourself with your um, your research or the experiments that you basically did on yourself um, using fecal transplants and machine learning to um, genetically modify gut bacteria to, so to I, lose I didn't, weight. I didn't genetically modify the gut bacteria. Oh, you didn't genetically um, modify it. Okay. So, so. But we, we just worked out which bacteria does what. So, 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 All so, right. okay. so, so the idea that I have to be careful there because uh, you, I do do genetic modification, but, but that's in an accredited uh, lab where I can actually do stuff legally. Okay, but that's important to point that out. Yeah, you yeah. shouldn't you shouldn't genetically modify things in your kitchen. That's illegal. Okay. Uh, okay. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to genetically modify things in your kitchen, it's illegal. Don't, so don't do it. D- yeah. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but but th- there's there's a there's a look there's a massive biohacking community out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what you need to do is just find an accredited laboratory. Um, and it's pretty much free to go there. And then all they do is they just supervise you, right? To make sure that when you make a genetically modified organism, you don't just release it into the whole of Melbourne and everyone you know, gets it. That, that's a good point you're making there. Thank you very much. And you saved my job there. Um, <laughs> before we spread you some, some bad advice, thank you so much. Yeah. But the point I was trying to make is that um, going back to Barry. I just have to be sc- careful so I don't, oh, I don't want the oh, SWAT team coming hun- around to my hun- kitchen. 100%. Um, I, I think that comes with your hobby or with your fascination. Not a hobby, it's, like it's your full job, but your fascination. But my point that I was trying to make is that um, you were conducting these imper- uh, experiments on yourself because you thought there's some some benefits in you know um oh dude the, 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 there's a lot of benefits to gut bacteria i mean look my personal belief and i think this is where the science is going is that um a significant uh, reason for weight gain and a lot of other conditions actually is just yeah. having the wrong gut bacteria um because it's the same thing as what barry marshall saw right uh when we take a you know large sample size of the population and you do use statistical analysis you find that you know for people that are obese there's like specific bacteria that's present with those people Mm. that isn't present with normal healthy people Um, it's the same thing uh, for arthritis it's the same thing for uh, diabetes it's the same thing for depression actually and schizophrenia so what you find is that there seems to be specific gut bacteria within the gut of people who have these medical conditions. Now, look, correlation isn't causation. We don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Is that bacteria causing it? Is that thing there? But let's look at the experiments, right? So in the US, uh, you know, I have, I have mates who do fecal transplants. And uh, what they find is when they do fecal transplants, within about six months to a year, you find that uh, the weight of the person, uh, so you could have an obese person, will actually turn out to be within about a 5% interval of the person who donated the the bacteria. Oh, wow. Right? Wow. So obviously correlation isn't causation. You Mm -hmm. need to do a massive research study. But for example, like if literally pretty much 99% of the time if the donor's weight is that and the person ends up going to that weight, that's very interesting. It, it's it's like the guy who was like, okay, look, I, I can't conclusively prove this in a double-blind research study, but it does seem that people who've been infected with cowpox don't get smallpox. Yeah, it's worth it's worth looking at it. A little it's bit worth closer. looking yeah. at, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's also the same thing, like people that were depressed. Uh, there, there, was a, there was a study that I saw 
uh, where people who are depressed suddenly are not depressed because they're um, they've changed their gut bacteria. I think the gut is is in general has been so overlooked for for decades and i mean there's the book but i just looked up here at the bookshelf julia enders wrote a book the gut which was a massive bestseller as well and there's obviously more and more studies coming out and more people look into microbiome and you know people like you doing more research into that field but it's it's interesting how overlooked that whole organism or that part of our organism has been for so many decades why why you think has it taken so long for people to get clued on that you know our gut is a major factor to our health i think it's the institutionalization of science um so literally i mean the the way science i mean to take take for example like okay so if if you're at a university in the united states right yeah and you want to uh, set up a lab okay so someone will donate a million dollars right to to you to set up a lab say to cure cancer right yep um so rich guy donates a million dollars and they want to set up a lab so that you can then do some research so what research would be say for example in gut bacteria you want to collect samples of gut bacteria and sort of work out you know which gut bacteria is present with which people right or with cancer it's like i want to collect samples of the cancer genetically sequencing sequence it and see, you know, how does this cancer work, right? See if we can cure it, see if we can come up with a treatment for it, right? Yeah. So, so have a guess. So you've got a million bucks. How much does the, so how, so the university will literally give you a space on a floor. It'll mm -hmm. give you a bench. It'll give you a connection to gas and it'll give you an electrical connection. And it'll also give you a, um, Uh, a water connection with a basin. You get a basin, right? Yeah. What's the percentage of money from that grant that the universe takes that the university takes from you? Seventy percent. So, so what what ends up happening is you find PhD students who don't cost you anything. Yeah. Because literally, for a million bucks, you don't have enough money to hire staff. Hmm. Um, and where does the money go? Where does that seventy percent go? I mean, university administration. What I'm wondering is, with Silicon Valley looking massively into things like nootropics, um, I would think that there would be a bigger startup mentality. Let's say, like instead of like all these entities and um, looking for old school channels of funding, you you'll have some some tech billionaire throwing money around. Is that a thing or is that not a thing? Because I Look, I feel it, like it must go hand in hand, like the biohacking community that is pretty young still, and then this whole Silicon Valley uh, billionaire startup mentality environment. It's starting to become a thing, but the, the problem is you, you've got to realize like the medical community and, and you've, you've seen it with COVID, right? Like we're not nimble. Uh, the medical community and the infrastructure around that just simply is not nimble. Hmm. Um, what, what it's, it's very, very conservative, which I understand, but the problem is look, Barry Marshall won the Nobel prize in medicine. Yeah. He cured ulcers. Yeah. And people didn't take him seriously for 10 years. Yeah, that's a good right? point that you're making. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's unfortunate, but, you know, not, none of the big universities will ever take a biohacker seriously. They, they're not going to give them access to the lab. They're not going to give them access to the ability to be able to actually do a research study to actually prove conclusively what they've found. And the only way you're going to be able to commercialize the product you have is if you can do that research study and do that. Um, yes, you can get money from Silicon Valley to do that, but 
it's still in its early stages. Biohacking is a lot of things. It's not one one thing. It's a field of different things that um, that biohackers look at or people look at to optimize. Another thing that you are involved with um, is the field of sleep optimization, or in general, like optimization of brain function and the 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 effects of sleep deprivation or jet lag. I thought that was very interesting. Also, some of the stuff that you did. You worked with Lewis Hamilton. Is that correct? With the yes, Formula so, One driver? Yes, yes. So, so sleep's absolutely fascinating. So I, I got to know a couple of the guys uh, from yeah. NASA uh, who do the flight minister stuff. And um, so uh, they, so it, when you go into space, right, you've yeah. got about a 90-minute day. And what the Russians found is because the Russians weren't able to go to the moon because their rocket blew up. So they were like, okay, we'll, we'll try to do something else. So we'll try to see how long we can send people into space. The mirror the station, Russian, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the, the space stations, right? Because yeah, yeah. the, the Russians obviously had to had to appear like they're better than everybody else because their their moon rocket blew up, so, <laughs> that, so, so they so they couldn't do anything. So, so what they did is they they and they're very Russian, right? So they don't really care about the astronauts' health. So they just shove people in, into a tin can up into space and keep them up there for as long as they possibly could. Yeah. So they'd be getting records of human beings in space. And what the Russians found was one of the one of the reasons why the astronauts were actually getting sick was jet lag, mm. because the light and the dark change on this very frequent cycle. And so, so in your brain, you've got this circadian pacemaker. So there's there's like this uh, time clock for the brain, and it's linked to your eyes. And so your eyes will sense blue light and red light, and depending on how you experience blue light and red light and melatonin and other things like that, uh, it will actually reset your pacemaker so that your body knows what time it is on a 24 hour cycle. Yeah. Because one of the problems with the human body, did you know that the body's pacemaker actually doesn't go for 24 hours? It goes most of the time it goes for more than 24 hours. No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Because of, because of evolution. Because we didn't have a 24-hour day quite a long time ago when it first evolved. It was slightly different. All right. And so what the Russians found was that pacemaker wasn't getting reset. So the body clocks of the astronauts were going completely crazy, right? Yeah. But think of it like this. You've got all these rhythms in the body that work on a 24-hour cycle. So, for example, like your veins and arteries, they, they get smaller and they get bigger depending on what time of day it is. Your heart has a 70% decrease in performance at specific times of the day. Yeah. Right? Your brain has a specific decrease in performance at specific times of the day. So, for example, if you look at uh, car accidents and heart attacks, they normally occur at very specific times. And those specific times are when the organs supposed to be resting in that 24-hour cycle and you go off and do something crazy oh. like drive the car at 5 o'clock in the morning. Right? All right. Yeah. So your brain at five o'clock in the morning, even if you're awake, even if you've slept for 10 hours, will be at like 70% decrease in performance. So basically like as if you were drunk. As if you were drunk at yeah. five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so what was what, what they found with the astronauts is that those whole cycles just went completely crazy. And the astronauts were getting really, really sick. And what they worked at it was jet lag, right? So what they started doing was they started saying, okay, well, let's try to simulate day and night. So they used, they worked out that blue light at a specific time will reset the body clock 
and red light at a specific time will help reset the body clock. And it's important to get dark at specific times. Yeah. And then what they did is they synced the body clocks of the astronauts to a specific time zone and the astronauts didn't get sick. And they also stopped making mistakes and wow. you know, you know, doing things like that. So when the when Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the Russian uh, the Russian uh, you know, space forces they didn't have much money. They were pretty much bankrupt. So they pretty much they gave all that technology to NASA. Yeah. And I got to know a couple of the guys from NASA who actually took on that technology and and further developed at Harvard and other universities around the world. And so when astronauts go into space now like the circadian rhythms and the body clock stuff is really, really important. Yeah. Um, so when they're doing a spacewalk, like there's a, there's a 70% decrease in, decrease in performance depending on what time of day it is for brain function, right? Or for athletic performance. Yeah. So what they do when they go into space now is they work out when that peak performance period is. I bet they do. And they, yeah. schedule, <laughs> they schedule a spacewalk for that. Yeah. And so I got to know a couple of these guys and I was like, well, look, you know, I mean, why don't we see if we can, you know, so do do some experiments with people that aren't astronauts? Mm. Um, because the same thing that happens with jet, jet, if you do jet lag or you do shift work, you have the same issue, right? Yeah. So I go to the guys, why don't we try something out? So I had some friends uh, who work in Formula One. I contacted them. We got to know the Williams Formula One team. We got to know Aki Hintasa from McLaren. He was the the, the doctor at McLaren. And, and I'm, Yes, McLaren yeah. at, at the time. And it was like, okay, well, let, let's have a crack at it. Um, so we did some jet lag plans for the uh, some of the racing teams and for the drivers. Um, and then we saw how it worked. And, and you could you could see a massive increase in performance, right? I mean, so, say a pit crew, right? Yeah. I mean, one second in a pit stop is a huge amount. And if you've got your pit crew coming from you know one side of the world to Australia, if you can use light and dark, to shift the body clock to the optimum time frame for the race, you can reduce the uh, the turnaround time by a second or two seconds. That's amazing, and that's huge, right? And that's the same huge. thing, the same thing with, with with the drivers like Lewis Hamilton, right? So if you can optimize the the time where they're driving, so they're at their peak performance, right? Even three hours, like say, say for example, if you look at teams that fly from east coast us to west coast us right yeah they actually perform less because they're not at their peak performance time by about yeah, two or three yeah. hours right yeah yeah that's that's a phenomenon that is not yeah. yeah you're right yeah so 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 we did that i mean the guys like that and that turned into quite a successful company um and then we also did stuff with racehorses that's uh, what i was supposed to, to say you probably made some people a lot of money by optimizing racehorses. Well, <laughs> racehorses is also the jockey and the strategy and all that yeah, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the actual uh, horse as well, right? You work with the horse as well, is that correct? Oh, ho horses get jet lag. Um, oh so so I, I, we, we literally made some horse sunglasses and we put them on the horses <laughs> and we had like That's a awesome. dude we had like a dude in the airplane with like a blue light and that is like amazing. come up to the horses in the airplane and oh shine the blue light in their eyes. Um, so, so, so that was a lot of fun, but yeah, one of the benefits is obviously I don't get jet lag when I fly overseas, which, yeah, I bet, is, which is I bet useful. you don't, I bet you yeah. don't. And I, and I mean, with the blue, the, the, the importance of, of light or what kind of light, we all know that when we look at our phones, not in night mode or in general, look at our phones at night, but just before we want to go to sleep. Well, it, it makes a huge difference. I mean, like if, if you want to know how to I mean, it's shift workers, right? So shift workers die about 20 years earlier. 
And you can actually see that their brains shrink in specific areas because they're doing shift work. Wow. And it's the, exactly the same thing with pilots that do jet lag. Yeah. Um, and there's an increase in cancer. Like, so uh, shift work and jet lag are actually uh, carcinogens. So they're listed as probable carcinogens. So, I mean, you don't drink benzene, right? No. Because benzene causes cancer. Yeah. Well, the, the shift work and jet lag uh, have the same cancer-causing effects as benzene. You're having me a little bit worried here, Paul, because A, I did morning show breakfast radio, which meant I get up at four every morning, and I also did shift work. I might have to check my heart again and my brain. Well, 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 well there's a way to do it. So what, what you do is you, 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 do what, you do what they do on the space station, yeah. and you literally hack your body clock so that it's at the time zone that you need it to be. So, for example, if you were doing breakfast radio, what you should be doing is you should be on New Zealand time, not on, uh, on, not on Melbourne or Sydney time. Yeah. And if you do that, then your body functions normally. Um, all right. Now it makes sense. So you kind of reset you reset your body, you optimize your body uh, to to whatever you need it to be. Like when it needs it's to pretty be cool. peak like, performance. It's cool. Yeah, it's really cool that it's it, that it, it works it took, like it took that. My friends some convincing. It took my friends some convincing. Oh, bad. Like uh, I when bet. we were, when we were flying overseas, I was like, yeah, I don't get jet lag. And they're like, no, I'll be fine. And then it's like the friends that actually, you know, did did the jet lag program didn't get jet lag, the ones that <laughs> didn't were, were Let's just say the next time they flew to the States with me, uh, they did the program. We also did it with the cricket teams, with the rugby teams. It was pretty successful. Yeah, because they have some very long, long flights, obviously, and then they have to perform basically the next day. Yeah, that, that makes Oh, but it's sense. also shift work, right? Yeah. Say, say for example, yeah. the matches at three o'clock and your optimum time for that specific uh, activities at, uh, at 12. Well, you can shift yourself to New Zealand time so that you're more effective. Isn't it interesting that, you know, there's so much emphasis on work safety, workplace safety. And, you know, then I, I picture a factory or some, some company that has a lot of shift workers. That should be mandatory that they teach them how to optimize. Well, I mean, their, you, you can patterns. sue. Uh, so people actually have sued and, and they are suing uh, for that. Hmm. I mean, if you're a shift worker, literally you, your lifespan decreases by about 10 to 20 years. Wow. And that's, that's proven. Um, so there is stuff that you need to do. Um, I mean, I have the software that's able to do that. So if anyone wants to, to, to contact me, they're welcome to. Paul, we obviously talked a lot about the cool stuff that you can do with biohacking and the, um, you know, the massive advantages that you, that you can gain or the massive, massive upside that, that it can have. Um, but there's obviously also a downside to it. And what I find interesting is that certain areas of science are under constant watch and authorities and, you know, the broader public see potential dangers. Um, a good example is, for example, when it comes to nuclear energy and nuclear power and uh, the, kind of, the risk of having that kind of knowledge in the wrong hands. And there's a famous case of uh, the teenage boy scout, David Hahn, who built... Uh, not a proper nuclear reactor, but tried to build a nuclear reactor in his mother's backyard in the 90s. Um, and that didn't go down very well. And that became a very big uh, case. And uh, no. you know, everyone was aware of it. But the question is, why are we so alarmed of a teenager putting a, like pulling apart uh, smoke detectors to get radioactive material out of that? But we seem to not be very alarmed about the potentials of bioterrorism if CRISPR technology is that available at the moment. Why is that? That's a really good question. I mean, picture this, right? A, a few years ago, I was uh, meeting with uh, ministers, uh, both in the UK and in Australia, saying that uh, biowarfare um, and you know, biohacking 
is actually a genuine threat and it's a threat to civilization right yeah um and i have a vial of um uh, 90% of the DNA of smallpox. And I come in and I talk to them and I say, look, I literally ordered this online. And if someone has skill and a fair bit of money, yeah. they can change that to smallpox. Um, they didn't take it seriously. Um, oh, I, I don't come know. On. Come on. No, they didn't. Seriously. Like, I mean, uh, we, we've been lobbying for, for ages to, to, to get people to take this seriously. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's because there's a lack of scientific knowledge. Um, people don't really study science and they don't mm. understand what science is. I mean, so, say, for example, like a bioweapon, right? What's a bioweapon, right? So bioweapons are you know, bacteria, viruses, and then like toxic agents like botulism, right? Yeah. And these can be used like to kill specific people or to take out the whole of society or take out crops and and, and stop the food supply right yeah I mean, Anth yeah. anthrax was another good example that was anthrax thrown yeah. out by the by the bush administration i think as well with the yeah. weapons of and, mass and destruction look, conversation all that yeah look I'll, I'll tell you and you can you can do by where i mean you can literally convert the kitchen in your house into laboratory and produce basic bioweapons and 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 what why countries interested well they're cheap right mm. Mm. um they're self-replicating so you, you literally just you know it's a weapon of mass destruction for poor people they're hard to detect when they're made um i mean they're deadly i mean it's about a million times more powerful than chemical weapons yeah. and frankly they're badass right i mean um we, we, we cool. i mean sorry we're, we're currently in a pandemic we can see what kind of you know devastating effects uh, a virus can have so yeah people should be way more worried and You know, I reckon building a nuclear bomb is so complicated compared to something like that. So it's it's ridiculous that they're not more alarmed by 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 the potential well, of this. Well, the, the the thing is though too. I mean, like you got the big countries like you know, Russia had smallpox on intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, yeah. in the 1990s, mm. um, they were a bit sneaky actually. But the, the thing is, look, most the the problems this right. I was actually talking to national security people in the states about 10 years ago about this. And what they said is like, they just didn't have a solution because look, the, the problem is this, most of the stuff exists in nature, right? Um, yeah, you literally just need to functionalize biological agents. Yeah. Um, so then what you know, you take something from nature and you modify it to make it into a weapon. Um, yeah, you modify it to resist treatments or make it more virulent or you change the delivery mechanism, right? So for example, with anthrax, right? Anthrax tends to disappear pretty quickly because it's in the air. Yeah. So you've got to do stuff to make it sort of stick around so that it infects people, right? But the the, the hard bit's really just um, obtaining the nasty strains of agents or viruses and bacteria. Um, it's not that hard to actually uh, do home experiments with the strains like that. Um, and, and that's something that we really need to be careful for because it's an interesting question because it's like, Just imagine if 200 years ago, you know, people could go and hack nuclear weapons. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, to make a nuclear weapon, it is pretty complicated. But to 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 change uh, biological agents to make them into potential weapons is actually pretty easy. Um, and you, all of the stuff's about like you can learn it online. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not it's not incredibly easy. It's not something that everybody can do. Uh, but it's something that's possible. Um, so we have to sort of work out how to do that. I mean, 
I've got a few potential solutions because we've been lobbying governments to sort of try to try to prevent it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a tough question. One of the big problems is that the politicians themselves don't really have a background in science. Mm. I mean, I remember like I'd be talking to science ministers who don't have science degrees and don't understand basic biology. Right. You need to know this sort of stuff. Um, I, I really think it's, it's, it's a situation where we're going to learn about biology the same way that we know about computers just to survive. But what it also means is we enter into a society where a lot of diseases are cured, where a lot of advancements are being made, just like the internet boom, there's going to be a biology boom. Um, a good friend of mine, and he, he died recently, was a guy called Freeman Dyson, a physicist. Um, he was a really cool guy. I, I, he had his mobile phone on the internet. Yeah. Uh, so this guy came up with the, um, the mathematics for quantum theory with, uh, with Richard Feynman. So he, he's, he's super smart. Yeah. He, he then went off to uh, create a nuclear bomb-powered rocket that could go from here to Mars carrying 1,000 people in a month. Um, and it all works. Um, seriously. Yeah. And so, so I, I, I saw this documentary in 2006 about this nuclear bomb-powered rocket. I'm like, well, why can't we build a nuclear bomb-powered rocket? So I, I look him up on the internet and there's like his mobile. So I call up this mobile and it was actually him at home. <laughs> and I'm like, hi, Freeman. I was just watching this. Um, can, can I catch up with you next time I'm in, you know, San Diego or if I'm up in prison? It's like, yeah. So I got to know him pretty well. And it was actually quite funny because whenever I was in San Diego, uh, it would be me, a friend of mine who is the bouncer for a strip club and Freeman Dyson hanging out, having beers, <laughs> talking about stuff. So it's a shame he's dead. He's like 94, but uh, he, he, was like, he was like my mate. And um, so we'd be sitting there like talking to Freeman and um, Freeman literally was talking about this. He, he literally said, look, you can manipulate DNA the same way that you can manipulate computer code, which means that we're going to be doing that. Um, whether you like it or not, you, you you need to learn about it. You need to know how to interact with that. You can't just stop it because the knowledge is already out there. No, and plus I think that's part of the science community. If it's somehow possible, people would try to make it happen. They, there's there's no stopping it. My mate Eric, the strip club bouncer, got pretty freaked out though. Like, so every time he talked to Freeman, he'd be like, "Oh man, the world's the world's gonna be in a bad place." <laughs> Look, let's hope the world's going to be in a good place. Um, and also thanks to maybe some biohacker that has the right idea at the right time and will not be overheard. Paul, thank you so much for your time. This was an absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to talk more about CRISPR, biohacking, some of the other fields that you're working in. Uh, you, you're very knowledgeable in the field of AI in general, but also propaganda studies and uh, how that all works. So I think you're working on a book at the moment. I, I am, yes. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, Ben. And hopefully uh, next time we meet, I can tell you all about uh, the time when I interviewed Nazis and KGB people uh, to work out how they controlled the population. That sounds very looming uh, and dooming, but also insanely interesting. Um, thank you so much and have a great day and uh, talk again soon. Cheers, Ben. I'm off to uh, sequence my poop. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and see you next time.